and verse 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 1. Uh, we've been studying the, uh, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. We started it back a week or so before uh, the uh, Resurrection Sunday celebration. And I've, as I mentioned, I always feel so rushed just having that one Sunday uh, to go through it. So guess what? You got that one Sunday stretched out over, I don't know, half a dozen weeks or whatever it's been so far. But 1 Corinthians 15, if you want to talk about important chapters in the Scripture, here it is. The, this is an important chapter. Uh, it's amazing how the, the old devil ha- is such a master of distraction that he can take away from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ and he can twist it up in so many different ways. It's un- unreal and unbelievable. So we need to be able to go back and go back to... What is the gospel? Now, what what truly do people need to know? What do they need to believe in in order to be saved? Uh, I've had a conversation with multiple people about this, and sometimes they say, well, if a person is in this church or in this church, they can't possibly be saved. I, I think God is a lot more gracious than we tend to be. Uh, we'll know when we get to eternity, but it doesn't relieve us from the responsibility of trying to get it right trying to present it right and get it in such a way that it is understandable. It is not uh, deeply theological. I think about that. Well, if you just believe in the propitiation of sins for the entire world, and then you then you go ahead and you start adding all these great theological terms to make you look good, you can confuse people. Gospel's simple. Keep it simple, stupid. A lot of us remember that. Kiss. Uh, of course, it's not the singing group. Uh, that's in view, but we remember that the message needs to be simple. And what is it? And one of the things that we need to be able to do is show them in Scripture where it says what we're saying. Because it's not my words that make the difference, it's God's word that makes the difference. That's what makes the difference in our life. So let us, uh, we're going to take a look at this. Let's prepare to take a look at it. Uh, and again, I apologize. We didn't have enough elements to do the Lord's table because of me. Uh, I've been ordering those, and I thought about it after the last one. And I thought we need to do that, and I need to order another box. And then last night, when it's too late, I went. I don't think we've got enough of those things left. So anyway, then I confirmed it this morning. And we could ask some of you to leave, but that's not a really good. <laughs> I know some already has, because they know what the Indy 500's running today, and it started at 10. So uh, it was, uh, we're, we're glad to have people tuning in on the live streaming, but some of them cut off right at 10 o'clock. So <laughs> maybe I don't know. Anyway, let's just take a moment for prayer uh, and let us uh, think about the one who did give it all that makes eternal differences in our life. Let us pray. Father, once again we thank you for your amazing grace. It is indeed a sweet sound. We thank you for the gospel and just how clear that you have made it to us. And I pray, Father, that as we go through this this chapter, I pray that you'll make it even more clear and more firm uh, into our lives. And I pray more than that, that we'll be stimulated to share it with other people. Father, give us the courage, give us the boldness, give us the wisdom to know how and when to do it. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, in 1 Corinthians 15, now the Corinthian church, you might remember, is somewhat of a mess. Okay? This is a group that uh, uh, if if you can mess it up and still be called a Christian, they messed it up. Which was not encouraging to them, obviously, but it's encouraging to the rest of us. So we can can make some different, we can do some things a little differently. Now, what we saw and what we've been looking at in the, the resurrection, the first thing we saw was his credentials. That was the prophecies that he fulfilled. The next thing was the procedure. What was the sequence of events that carried about 
during the last week, the week before the cross, up through and including uh, the cross. Then we saw the cross itself, took a look at that, and now we're going to look at the resurrection. Now, how important is the resurrection? Some people don't think it's important at all. Some people don't even add it into the gospel. Some people think, well, if you just put your faith in Jesus, but there was a whole lot of people named Jesus in the first century. There's still a lot of them today roaming around. And so what are you talking about when you talk about this this man named Jesus who lived in the first century and died on a cross? You have to describe him. I was at a Free Grace Alliance conference. We're a member of that because I believe they get the, the gospel very, very clear. And one of the things that they were talking about, this is 20 years ago, was the simplicity of the gospel, but they were looking kind of for the lowest common denominator. What is the least we can say that people need to believe in order to be saved? And then a wise man spoke up, and his name was Larry Moyer. He's the head of East West Ministries based out of Dallas. Larry spoke up and said, you know, I've never approached the gospel seeing how little I could tell people. Why don't we tell them the whole thing? <laughs> Who he is. Because what we want, what he wants is disciples. So don't be afraid to tell them. But then you ask the question, what is the minimum? I just seem to tell them the whole thing. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus was God and became man. And I mean, we could talk for days on that, right? How do we get the message simple is the question. Now, what we find is that in chapter 15, we find the doctrine of the resurrection. We find, first of all, the importance in the first 11 verses. How important is the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ? We find the consequences of the resurrection in 12 through 19. Then we find hope that comes about from the resurrection. Then we find, so what? The application. What, what difference should it make in my life? You know, if I'm going to die one of these days, but I'm going to be resurrected, then can you really scare me? I mean, shouldn't we have courage that comes with that, knowing where we're going to spend eternity? And you know what you just did? You just disarmed the devil. Is what you just did. Because the fear of death is his tool. And so when you can disarm him, then, then he, he has a lot less impact and influence in your life. The illustration in 35 to 49, and then the result, 50 to 58. Now, another outline of chapter 15. <clears throat> Use this multiple times. First 19 verses, the resurrection is grounded in history. It's a historical act. It's a historical fact. It is something that has been verified. It is something that can be trusted. So when you're talking about the gospel, remember this. It has been proven throughout history. The second thing is, is that it's grounds for revival. The gospel is where the grounds for revival is. There's a lot of people that get a revival in their emotions, but if you don't get a revival in the gospel, so what? Because emotions are going to fade, but the gospel is going to go on forever. It's called the eternal gospel for no little reason in Revelation 14.6. But it's, it's ground for, re, for revival. And the resurrection is the guarantee of our revelation. One of these days we're going to be just like Jesus. And we know that because we'll be able to see him just as he is. That's what the, the scripture says in 1 John 3.2. So we know we're going to be like him. Now that is a great thing to think about. It's the guarantee It says that everything he said and did was true. It was accurate. Because he said multiple times to his disciples, they're going to take me, they're going to, bad guys are going to take me, and they're going to crucify me, and on the third day I'm going to rise again. Oh, he said he was going to rise again. What if he hadn't? That's what Paul's going to talk about in this chapter. If he really didn't rise again, we are still lost in our sins. We still have a problem with sin. Because that meant that he was a false prophet. It didn't mean he was the Messiah if he didn't rise again. So how important is the resurrection? Our faith hinges on it. Now, the first verse. 
Paul says, I make known to you. This is the uh, word norizo, present tense. He's saying, I'm doing it right now. And remembering, he's writing a church that's just as goofy as they get. Chapter 1, they argued over who baptized to. Chapter 2, they lost sight of the fact that you have to have a grace apparatus, a way to understand spiritual things. Spiritual things are spiritually discerned. Chapter 3 was about eternal rewards. And they got... They got those backwards. Chapter 4, they rejected authority established by God, namely Paul. Chapter 5, they permitted flagrant immorality in the church. Chapter 6, they brought lawsuits against one another in secular courts. Chapter 7, they messed up marriage. Chapter 8, they messed up their freedom. Chapter 9, they messed up giving. Chapter 10, they messed up their spiritual heritage. Chapter 11, they messed up the Lord's table. And turned it into a drunken party. Chapter 12, they messed up spiritual gifts. Chapter 13, they messed up love. Chapter 14, they messed up church government. And chapter 15, how can some among you say there is no resurrection? They messed up resurrection. <laughs> and they're still called saints. In chapter 1, verse 2. And later on that chapter, he's getting ready to chew them out like probably no church has ever been chewed out in the history of the world. He's getting ready to uncork on them, and he said, I want you to keep in mind you're saved. It's not about your works, never has been, never will be. It's about his work on the cross. Now, I cause to make known, norizo is a causative word. You're going to give them information that they're supposed to learn. I will cause to make known to you Brethren, he's talking to believers here. We know the church at Corinth was a mixed church of Jews and Gentiles, so he's not just talking to his Jewish brethren. It's the gospel which I, myself, literally, preached to you, which also you received, aorist active indicative of parlambano. That's parlambano is the receive word. Aorist tense is the point in time. So when Paul evangelized them, he gave them the gospel which they accepted. Okay? Point in time. In which also you stand. Here he moves to a perfect tense of the word histami. The perfect tense, because histami is used in, in multiple tenses. When it's used in the perfect tense, it says it is a completed action and the results go on forever. So here is in which also you stand. So Corinthians, even though you're messed up as, as you can get, guess what? You're standing in the gospel. The only reason you stand at all is because of his grace and what he did. And he is faithful even if we are faithless. He wrote that to Timothy a few years later just to be sure people understood. And he says, in which you stand, verse 2, by which, or dia is the... Uh, preposition here through which and he's saying that the gospel is the instrument to deliver the saving message through which you are saved now this is a word that is a present passive indicative of the word sozo two different words are translated as saved and sozo means to preserve from danger whereas ruomai is a word that means to rescue out of the middle of danger Two different, two different words. This is the word sozo. But the present tense is a preservation from danger. And this is because of its use. You are being saved. See, they're already saved. How do I know that? Chapter 1, verse 2. Chapter 1, I think it's 9 to 11 in there, that they're still believers. Chapter 3, verse 16, that you're saved so as by fire. They're already saved. But he's talking now about the Christian life. Because there's a salvation of the Christian life. We are saved from the penalty for sin. And that's the eternal salvation that we have forevermore with the Lord. But the power of sin is going to be present in us until the rapture. When we get rid of this old worn out body that's carrying a sin nature around. It's amazing what we do to, to, uh, to, to this body, isn't it? And this old body and how long we want to hang on to this old body and all that. And all the pain and suffering and stuff we'll go through to hang on to it. 
and not realizing that the next one is not going to have any. You know, we we Satan just goes, yeah, let's let's see what we can do with them on this. We're going to get them worshiping their own body instead of worshiping the body that rose from the dead, Jesus. So he tries to change our our viewpoint. He says, you are being saved if you hold fast. That's where that if comes in. If you are holding fast, this is the word kadeko, and it assumes a, a premise to be true. It says, if you are doing this, okay, do you want to really know you're saved? Because people that are already saved sometimes don't know it. And he says, if you're holding fast the word which I preach to you. Now, <clears throat> the word is an indefinite pronoun, uh, tis, and logos is literally, they go together. He says, holding fast to that word. To that word. Which I preached to you, unless you believed, pistuo, point in time, takes them back to the moment of their initial salvation, in ektos, nothing, at random. No definite object you can deliver, is what he's saying. Now, let's try to and that's a lot to absorb out of those two verses that come right out of those, uh, come right out of the uh, uh, exegesis of the verses. But Paul is addressing believers and reminding them how they were initially saved. Okay, we know they're believers to the saints who are at Corinth. Okay, we know that they're already believers. And he said it multiple times. And now he says, how do you know you really are? And, how, and he's reminding them, how were you initially saved? The gospel was heard. Okay, it's what he just said. It was understood. It was believed at a point in time which produced lasting results. And that's why the aorist tense is being used. Now, the object of the faith, Jesus the Messiah, is the one who saves. Not the simple ability to believe something. Some people say, well, just have faith, just have faith. Faith in what or faith in who is always the question. I noticed all of you sat down on those chairs without any hesitation. <coughs> you, weren't, you weren't going, oh, I don't know if this chair will hold me up. Why? You've been in it before. Okay, You've seen other people sit in it. You know that, yeah, it's going to hold you up. So literally, to sit down was an object of faith, but there was merit in the object of faith in that chair. Now try to sit in thin air. Well, I can't have faith in that. Well, we shouldn't have faith in that. But there are people who, who believe something with all their heart, and they believe the wrong stuff. Uh, Buddhism, for example. To believe there's plenty of gods and many gods... And uh, they actually don't believe in all the hierarchy of the Hindu gods, but what the Buddhists believe is that, that they can become God. So they're atheists in a sense. They are don't believe in one God, but they believe they can ascend into Godhood, which is evolutionary theory. You can believe that all you want, but it is not. There, there is no good object. There is no proof. One of the things about Christianity is we have a reasonable faith because we have facts. We have a resurrection grounded in history. Okay? One that has been observed, one that has been looked at. So if I want somebody to conquer that to, for my eternity to trust in, I want somebody that's conquered sin and death. And only one of them has done that. Only one. You can go to the tomb of Buddha and guess what? He's still there. You can go to the tomb of, of uh, Muhammad. He's still there. <laughs> See, there, there's only one that walked away from a tomb. So I want somebody that's conquered sin and has conquered death. If they did not believe in Jesus as Messiah, Paul is saying, they believed in nothing. Now, what is the crux of being the Messiah? Redeemed, I love to proclaim it. I love that song. I love to sing that song. Because it's about the Redeemer. Like Job, I know my Redeemer lives, and at the last he shall take his stand on the earth. So if they didn't believe in Jesus as Messiah, they just thought he was, a, oh, he's a carpenter's son. 
from Nazareth. Oh, probably born out of wedlock from Nazareth. Oh, my. All the things that they said about this guy named Jesus. What was he doing on that cross is the question they've got to answer. Now, once saved, the gospel must continue to be understood, believed, and held on to as a firm foundation in order to preserve a person from the danger of spiritual error. Because this salvation in time that we're talking about is different. It's dealing with the power of sin. And we need to be preserved from that danger of spiritual error. You know, Paul made statements about, I know I shall be preserved and saved to you. If we track the word salvation all through the New Testament, we'll find a physical preservation and all that. Usually that's what we think about. You know, if a tornado is coming, don't we pray for a physical deliverance? It's frequently what we do. What do we need to focus on primarily? What if you're in a jail for the cause of Christ and they're talking about beheading you and you know that your your number's coming up, they're going to haul you out and they're going to chop your head off and that's going to happen. Would you rather everybody say, well, I want to be preserved from physical death. How about the spiritual issue? When we train ourselves to think in spiritual terms, we'd say, I don't want any fear. If they're bringing me out there to do that, I don't want any fear. I want to be able to to um, uh, represent my Lord and give no, no opportunity for the enemy. Wouldn't, wouldn't that be a greater preservation? I would think so. As one of the disciples, I'm cycling through the file cabinet up here. <clears throat> I can't quite remember which one, may have been James. That he, when he was being taken to be executed, he was so pious, as they said. He was so resolved, he was so easy. And I don't think it was James. But <clears throat> they said that others came to believe because they saw <clears throat> the calm nature that he had. Now, see, that's the type of thing that, that we would want, we should want, if we fall under that level of persecution. Lord, give, give me the grace to, to be just as, just as you. Give me the grace to be that. It'll then preserve from sin. See, if we go on believing that, so some people are saved by grace through faith, as we all are. That's how we get saved. And then we forget that. Because the devil comes in and starts adding stuff to the gospel. Colossians 2, 6 and 7. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. So you want this peace that passes understanding? How were you saved? By grace through faith. As you've received him, so walk in him. We walk by grace and we walk through faith. In what? The resurrected Lord having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. See, faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ is essential to salvation, both from the penalty for sin and from the power of sin. These battles with the power of sin are not without their rewards or not without their cost. Because if we're involved in sin, we're not gaining eternal rewards. You know, we do all things to His glory. We don't do them to our glory. We do things to His glory. That's rewardable. We do things for our glory so that we'll be seen by men. Matthew 6, like the Pharisees. We do things to be seen by men. No rewards in that. That's all that wood, hay, and stubble that goes kapoof. It may have been a good thing. Give someone a glass of water. Give someone a plate of food. Give someone that. But you do it so they'll say thank you to you. Uh -uh. We do it so God will get the glory. Sola Dei Gloria. Glory only to Him. <clears throat> Therefore, the gospel is the ongoing foundation of the Christian life. It's the ongoing foundation of the Christian life. So the principle is the gospel is the basis for deliverance for time and eternity. You believe in Jesus Christ, you are delivered forevermore, but you want to live a life, they call it uh, the abundant life, the fulfilled life, 
There's a whole bunch of different authors that wrote different things, calling it the calling it by different titles. It's the same thing. You want the you want the life that really makes a difference and the life that really matters. The gospel. You remember what he what he did. So when you start feeling bad and low and all that, let's go, just go back to the beginning here. He saved me while I was yet an enemy. Do you think he loves you any less now that you're a kid of his? Impossible. It's the basis for deliverance. Sometimes even believers need to be reminded of their salvation. <clears throat> Especially after receiving multiple corrections. So here is the church at Corinth. And I went through just part of all the corrections that he made over the first 14 chapters before he got here. And what is he doing? He says, I, I, I gave you the gospel. You believed in the gospel. It's what gives you the foundation, the firmness to be able to carry on. Now... <clears throat> After receiving it, they needed to be reminded of it. What did they believe in? What got started? What got them started in the Christian life? And what started that church that assembled together at Corinth? What did it? It's this message. A simple message. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance. This is in with protos. This is first in time and first in rank. Protos. In protos. He's saying... Okay, the first thing you heard from me, probably after a warm-up and an introduction, the stuff that really made a difference, he said, here's the gospel that I brought to you. And then he's saying, it's first in rank. It's first in importance. It is most critical. He says, what I also received. Isn't that how the gospel's carried on? You get the gospel, and you give it to somebody else. Received as an aorist tense, a paralambano. Paul's saying, this is how I got saved. And what, I'm tell- what I told you is what saved you, but it's how I got saved too. Now, which I also received, that Christ, Christos, that is the anointed one, the Messiah, died for our sins. Here again, the precision of the Greek, aorist tense of apothenesco, means he died at a point in time. And then it says, for our sins is the word huper, which means as a substitute on behalf of our hemartia, our missing of the mark. Now, how many times do we miss the mark? Um... We were talking at breakfast yesterday about shooting guns and targets and how far away they were and how our eyes were not as good as they once were and our hands are not as steady as they once were. So we are more prone to missing the mark now than we were earlier in our life. But that's what it's about. See, hitting the hitting the exact target is hitting the ten ring. It's not the nine ring. If you hit the nine ring, you miss the mark. So we're shooting for, for dead center. That's what we want to hit. And how many times have we missed the mark? Our thoughts have strayed. Our speech has gone awry. And our actions have gotten out of hand. How many times have we missed the mark? And he said, he said guess what? He died in place of that. Because the wages of sin is death. We deserve to die for any one of those. Missings of the mark. But when he went to the cross, he took our place. To see Christ as a substitute for us, taking our place is essential. We saw that in Leviticus 1, Wednesday night. We saw that the offeror was to place their hand on the head of the offering, the imputation of sins. This animal had done anything wrong. If it had done anything wrong it would not have been a, a sacrifice, legitimate sacrifice under the Mosaic law. And then the offeror slit the throat of the animal. Whoa. See, it's easy to think, well, the priest did all that. Not on the burn offering. Well, the burn offering, the one that brought the offering did it. What's that telling us? 
that animal is dying because of what I did. That's what it's saying. And that's who Messiah is. That's who he is. He took our place on a cross. So when we say that he died for the sins of the whole world and managed to leave us out, we haven't fully understood it at all. He took everyone's place on a cross, but he took my place on a cross too. We have to personalize that. Because we can, we can say corporate, think corporate, and we can excuse ourselves. Well, I know he took care of all the evil, wicked, mean, and nasty sins of everybody else around the world. We just saw the people that, that died in those wars that Seth put up there. I've been to a few places, I know you guys have too, where it's just amazing. Shiloh Battleground in Tennessee, we went through there, and I think there were 40,000 people died in Shiloh Battleground. And you're kind of going, wow. And Gettysburg, same thing. I went to a place in Belarus one time, and it was a war memorial. It is where the Germans met the Russians. And it was so sad because 60,000 people died that day. 60,000 unbelievers without the Lord Jesus Christ on the whole. And it was a sad place to be around. And they piled them all up together, dug a hole, and put them in a mass grave and built a monument on it. Here's a picture of how bad man can be to man. Now, he says, Christ died on behalf of our sins according to the Scriptures. How important is the Scripture to the Gospel? Paul brought the Gospel to the Corinthians just as he received it. That's the summary. Paul's saying, I, I brought it to you just like I got it. The first crucial element of the Gospel is Messiah took our place concerning the death penalty that was due for our sins. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. In Colossians 2, verses 13 to 15, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, talking to Gentiles here, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. Having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us and which was hostile to us, he's taking it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Wow. Have you ever thought that maybe there's a list somewhere of all the sins that we'd committed? Well, why define sin? Because where there's no sin, no law, sin's not imputed. So God defines sin. So why we, we so we would know what Christ paid for on the cross. That's why He defined it. And He says, "Here's a decree against you, brought about by commandments. Got your name on it and your list of sins. And when He went to the cross and the nails hit His hit His wrist, it says He nailed that debt." There. It's Colossians 2. That's why the word tetelestai, it is finished, or paid in full, means all the more. Those debts were paid on the cross. He says, and when he disarmed the rulers and the authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them, these rulers and authorities, through him. Now, <clears throat> It only takes one sin to make a person worthy of condemnation. Because it's so easy, the devil's good at getting us to play spirituality by comparison. Well, I'm not as bad as fill in the blank. We can always find somebody that we're better than in human terms. James 2.10 Whoever keeps the whole law and stumbles in one point can become guilty of it all. Now see, it's, I've heard people say, I know some of you probably heard people say too, well, it's a Ten Commandments, I did pretty good with seven or eight of them. <laughs> some of them I just messed up. Paul said I did real good with nine of them. Read Romans 7. Until I got to the one about covet. 
And he said, I didn't do good with that one at all. <laughs> because I saw it, and it produced coveting in me of every kind. Was the law bad? No. The law was good. But what, what my rebellious nature did, what any I wanted what other people had. He wanted to be, remember, he wanted to be number one. Read Acts 7. And, and he was there holding their coats while they were stoning Stephen. And Paul was one that got a decree to go out and imprison Christians, round them up, kill them. He, he had that. And here is Paul. And, and uh, yeah, Paul understood uh, about the, the level of sin that he was in. Sin is anything falls short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23. That's just simple definition of what is sin. And why talk about sin now? Because we're in a world that doesn't recognize it. Talking with Thomas Samuel, uh, one of the, the gentlemen's been on the back wall there for a long time. And he says, you talk to a Hindu about sins, they don't have a clue what you're talking about. Because there's good karma and there's bad karma. And there's stuff that builds your karma and stuff that takes away from your karma and all that. But they don't consider it a missing of the mark or a sin. It's just one is better than the other one. Now, that kind of opens the door up to a whole lot of stuff, doesn't it? They don't even see it. So you have to teach them about missing the mark and about perfection and what it is. You have to know where their worldview is coming from to even be able to get the gospel into them. And that's why his, his approach was give your neighbor a Bible. He uh, Operation, I'll leave the name off of it, but he's a big part of what has gone on in India now for 30 or 40 years. He personally has given away over 100,000 Bibles. And he will encourage believers, you go buy one. You go buy one, buy an extra one, and pray about which neighbor you're going to give it to. And then they will become friends with the neighbors called Lifestyle and Evangelism. They'll become friends, then they'll hand them a Bible and invite them to read it. And they view one Bible, one soul. Because they know the power of the Word of God. And so that's what they have done. That's been their ministry for, for a long time. The sin nature passed through the man to his offspring, the man, is also sufficient to condemn. So man has a twofold problem. Romans 5.12 says, Just as one man sin entered into the world, death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. He said that also in Romans 4.15. So he says it twice there in the book of Romans. If there is no sin, there, if there is no law, there is no sin. He says, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam. So there's another type of, of death that is involved. And there is also another problem besides personal sin. <clears throat> of Adam, who's a type of him who was to come. We as human beings face the problem of the sin nature passed down through Adam to every member of the human race except Jesus. That's why the need of the virgin birth came from Adam. And so then we also add insult to injury and pile sins on. Personal sins on top of that. Sins of the mind, the tongue, and, and of the action. Christ means the anointed one. The Messiah. The one who would deliver from sins. And thus there had to be a clear cut means to, is to, to identify him. If you're going to have to have faith in the Messiah a substitute, one who is perfect, one who can deliver from sins, there has to be a clear-cut way to identify him. Okay? And that's from uh, that's just from the passages we're looking at. Messiah would be the son of God and the son of David. Psalm 110, I love that passage. Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And they were badgering Jesus one day. And finally he said, How can 
David call him Lord and he be David's son? Because they all knew that what that verse was saying. That here's David calling him Jehovah and he's also David's son. How can that happen? And not but one answer. He's God and man at the same time. The only answer that could be given to that question. <clears throat> and many prophecies are used to identify the coming one. There's two prophecies that deal with the timing of the first advent. <clears throat> Genesis 49.10 is one of them. When Jacob is blessing his children... And especially, he's got the one here to Jacob, uh, to Judah. And he said, The scepter shall not depart from Judah until Shiloh comes. Shiloh is a Hebrew meaning the one to whom it belongs. The scepter is a ruler's staff. Until the one it really belongs to gets here. And I mentioned many times, 28 A.D., Two years before Jesus began his public ministry, Rabbi Akiba said, Woe to us, the scepter has departed from Judah, and Messiah has not yet come. They knew. They knew. And then two years later, they rejected him. The other prophecy is Daniel's 70th week, found in Daniel 9, verse 24 to 27. There are many prophecies used to identify the coming one. One of which was after that 69th week, Messiah would be cut off. Which to a Jew meant undergo capital punishment. How could Messiah undergo capital punishment? They had to think about it, right? And if you're one of these people that all the pieces have got to fit, then you're going to want to know how that fits. Some of them did. And some of the Pharisees were believing in Christ. Why? They saw where the puzzle pieces fit together. But they were afraid. Fear stepped in. But they later became part of the church. The scriptures foretold his death, even death on a cross. Psalm 22. <laughs> a lot of people would like to say, well, Psalm 22 wasn't written until A.D., because there's so many prophecies in Psalm 22 that so parallel what what happened to Jesus on the cross. So parallel. Stated a thousand years before the cross. It's interesting you don't have any prophecies of Mohammed beforehand. None of those things. Um, but you certainly do about Jesus, the coming Messiah. Adam died two deaths that were the result of eating from the forbidden tree, and that was spiritually. He died immediately and physically 950 years later. Genesis 2, 16 and 17 <clears throat> says, And the day that you eat of it, dying you shall die. That's literal Hebrew. Now, the, some of the Hebrew scholars have come out and said, actually, that that is just an intensification of the same thing. And it, it's sad because it kind of pulls away the, the literal nature of what God told Adam. Don't eat because dying you shall die. And <clears throat> dying, when you track that, because I tracked that all the way through the book of Genesis, what you find with that particular construction in the Hebrew is that usually... The first time the word is used, it's a spiritual nature. And the second time, it's a physical nature. Okay? <clears throat> Dying you shall die. Of all the trees of the garden, eating you shall eat. Why say it twice? Uh, let's see. Eating, okay, of all the trees of the garden. Not just the ones you like, Adam. I want you to eat from all of them. Eating, that means that he's going to take what God said and be obedient. And from obedience, he's going to eat from all the trees. It's first a spiritual decision. Then the second one, yeah, it's a physical decision. We'll go take some fruit from every one of the trees and eat. It is spiritual, then it is physical. 
Same thing, I believe, is the case here. The day you eat of it, dying. He died spiritually. How do we know that? Because next thing you know, it's Operation Fig Leaves. It is uh, hiding from God. It is trying to uh, uh, rationalize. It's blaming your wife for all your problems. We saw what Adam what Adam did. He died spiritually, and 950 years later, he died physically. That always bothered me as a kid. Adam, you eat from that, you're going to die. And I went, why didn't he die immediately? It seemed to me like he would as a kid. And then 30, 40 years later, I got the answer to, the answer to that. Is that what it was? He says, you know, <clears throat> Jesus died more than one death on one death to take care of all the sin problems caused by Adam at the fall of man. Now, Isaiah 53, 9, it's an interesting thing because occasionally you'll find translators translate a plural as a singular. Now, <clears throat> it'll get you in trouble when you do that. It says, with the rich man in his deaths. Isaiah 53, a messianic psalm. The Hebrew is a plural. No textual variance, no nothing. In his deaths. Died two deaths on the cross. Died spiritually when sins were imputed to him. Died physically when he gave up his ghost and said into your hands I commit my spirit. Died physically. Did both. I think it took care of both problems. When he did. Because I think anything that dealt with sin, Jesus took care of on the cross. Whether it be the sin nature but even those who didn't sin in the likeness of Adam's offense, they had a sin nature which was sufficient to condemn had they not even committed any other sins. This is part of what got Martin Luther to walk out of the, the monastery back in the 1500s, he said. If I, if I get become perfect, I'm still not going to be saved. He figured that out. Now, he, knew, he who knew no sin became sin for us. He is the substitutionary death. 2 Corinthians 5.21 The faith that saves includes the facts that Jesus was the one who died on the cross to pay for the sin problems of his creations. Colossians chapter 1, if we were to go back and look at this, because in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 15, actually go 13 and 14, he has delivered us from the authority of Satan, exousia of Satan, into the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He's the Redeemer that came along. And then he goes on to describe angels, principalities, powers, things present, things to come. He goes on to describe all those things, things visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, power. Everything in the in the creation. He created them. That's what it says. It's one of the key verses that is used uh, by most theologians to prove the pre-incarnate deity of Jesus Christ. Colossians 1, verses 15 through 19. In verse 20, it says, Through him, capital H, to reconcile all things to himself. And the all things in context is thrones, dominions, powers, authorities. Visible, invisible. It's all things. And it is defined, the all things, by the time it says that. Having made peace through the blood of his cross. Peace is, the, is reconciliation. Peace is the peace offering of Leviticus 3. It says that you were once in a state of hostility and now you're in a state of peace. So it basically is saying the whole creation was in a state of hostility. And the Lord's death on the cross established peace so that it could be had. But there was a condition. You had to believe in Him. That's it. And then He says, Through Him I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven, now, many people spend their lives trying to pay for their own sins, thus not experiencing the deliverance and peace that Messiah has already given. 
I mean, you talk about a means of rejoicing. I think we've we've got it, don't we? What he has already given to us, uh, we should rejoice in that. There should be a peace in that. Many people spend their lives in slavery to sins that have been paid for. Without seeing the escape from them, that is available. They don't have to weigh you down anymore. They don't have to be burdens around your neck. You know, the, the prophets, most of their time was spent with burdens for the people, which is an example of loving one another, isn't it? They were more concerned about their people than they were about them. But that's not the way it is in the world as a whole. We are more concerned about our burdens than we are about the sins of the people. An offer of salvation that does not present the issue of sin is not the gospel. That's my conclusion. If it doesn't have the issue of sin. And there are people who give out the gospel today and they, they don't even include sins. A lot of the, the big churches, sadly, don't even want to talk about sins. All you have to do is put your faith in Jesus. My question is, who and what did he do? Because you could believe that he that he lived and that he was a good man. A lot of people do, but that's not the faith that saves. What did he do for you? What did he do in your place? Is that where your object of faith is? To me, that's what the gospel is. It's very simple. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. You and your household. We're getting the crux of the gospel. We'll pick it up here next week. But the crux of the gospel is very, very clear. What do we need to believe? He died on behalf of us is the first first thing that we need to believe. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this day. Thank you for your mercy and grace. And Father, if there's anybody who's listened to this and have not yet trusted Christ as their Savior, Father, that he died for their sins. He really was buried, but he rose again on the third day. Father, we pray that the Holy Spirit will work on them and really not give them any peace till they see that that's a critical issue that faces every human being who has ever lived. What then do you think of Messiah? Father, we pray that through a simple acknowledgement to you that they too will become part of the family. They'll spend eternity with you and share all the joys and blessings of heaven. Father, we will give you the praise forever. Let us start today. In Jesus' name, amen.